Please be aware the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night, frighteningly imagined creatures, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. But I promise, all sorts of weirdness. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's dark enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, I got another long email, which I loved, asking if I would focus on some Chinese mythology. So you know what? Here you go. (laughs) All right. With that said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, my darlings, is yours. So choose your poison accordingly. Alrighty, now for the game part. How about every time I say Chinese, that will be a single shot. And every time I say Pa'an, that will be a double shot. Alright, now that we got the business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's Dark Enigma. So, don your best Han Fu or Ki Pao. And let's dive into today's offering of... Chinese mythology, cosmogony, pa'an ku, and the fashioner of the universe. Yeah, that was a mouthful. I'm going to be tripping over some words today. No joke. (laughs) All right. And I'm trying to be very factual today, so I hope you guys like this. Okay. The most conspicuous figure in Chinese cosmogony is pa'an ku. It was he who chiseled the universe out of chaos. According to Chinese ideas, he was the offspring of the original dual powers of nature, the yin and the yang, which having in some incomprehensible way produced him, set him the task of giving form to chaos and making the heavens and the earth. Some accounts describe him as the actual creator of the universe, the ancestor of heaven and earth and all that live and move and have their being. Pa'an means the shell of an egg, and ku to secure, solid, referring to pa'an ku being hatched from out of chaos and to his settling the arrangement of the causes to which his origin was due. The characters themselves may, however, mean nothing more than researches into antiquity, though some bolder translators have assigned to them the significance, if not the literal sense, of Aboriginal Abyss, or the Babylonian Tiamat, the Deep. Pa'anku is pictured as a man of dwarfish stature, clothed in bearskin, or merely in leaves, or with an apron of leaves. He has two horns on his head. In his right hand he holds a hammer, and in his left a chisel. Sometimes these can be reversed. The only implements he he used in carrying out his great tasks. Other pictures show him attended in his labors by the four supernatural creatures. The unicorn, phoenix, tortoise, and dragon. 
Others again with the sun in one hand and the moon in the other, some of the first fruits of his stupendous labors. His task occupied 18,000 years, during which he formed the sun, moon, and stars, the heavens and the earth, himself increasing in stature day by day, being daily six feet taller than the day before, until his labors ended. He died that his works might live. His head became the mountains, his breath the wind and clouds, his voice the thunder, his limbs the four quarters of the earth, his blood the rivers, his flesh the soil, his beard the constellations, his skin and hair the herbs and trees, his teeth, bones, and marrow, the metals, rocks, and precious stones, his sweat the rain, and the insects creeping over his body human beings, who thus had a lowlier origin even than the tears of Kaipara in Egyptian cosmology. This account of Pa'an Ku and his achievements is of Taoist origins. The Buddhists have given a somewhat different account of him, which is a late adaptation from the Taoist myth, and must not be mistaken for Buddhist cosmogony proper. In some of the pictures of Pa'an Ku, he is represented, as already noted, as holding the sun in one hand and the moon in the other. Sometimes they are in the form of these bodies, sometimes in the classic character. The legend says that when Pa'an Ku put things in order in the lower world, he did not put these two luminaries in their proper courses, so they retired into the Han Sea and the people dwelt in, dark in darkness. The terrestrial emperor sent an officer, terrestrial time, with orders that they should come forth and take their places in the heavens and give the world day and night. They refused to obey the order. They were reported to July. Pa'an Ku was called and at the divine direction of Buddha wrote the character for sun in his left hand and that for moon in his right hand and went to the Han Sea and stretched forth his left hand and called the sun and then stretched forth his right hand and called the moon at the same time repeating the charm devoutly seven times and they forthwith ascended on high and separated time into day and night. I'm just going to stop for a second and say, if you stop and really think about that, that's a beautiful way of describing how the days were formed. I just like that. It's very, very Zen. As you can tell, I like the Buddhists. Anyways, back to the story. Other legends recount that Pa'an Ku had the head of a dragon and the body of a serpent, and that by breathing, he caused the wind. By opening his eyes, he created day. His voice made the thunder, etc., etc., etc. We already went through all of this. Thus, we have the heavens and the earth fashioned by this wonderful being in 18,000 years. With regard to him, we may adapt the Scandinavian ballad. And I quote, It was time's morning when Pa'an Ku lived. There was no sand, no sea, nor cooling billows. Earth there was none, no lofty heaven, no spot of living green, only a deep profound. End quote. And it is interesting to note, in passing, the similarity between this Chinese artificer of the universe and Emir, the giant who discharges the same functions in Scandinavian mythology. 
though Pa'an Ku did not have the same kind of birth, nor meet with the same violent death as the latter, the results as regards the origin of the universe seem to have been pretty much the same. But though the Chinese creation myth deals with primeval things, it does not itself belong to a primitive time. According to some writers whose views are entitled to respect, it was invented during the 4th century AD by the Taoist recluse Magistrate Ko Hung, author of the Xin Sen Chuan, or Biographies of the Gods. The picturesque person of Pa'an Ku is said to have been a concession to the popular dislike of, or inability to comprehend, the abstract. He was conceived, some Chinese writers say, because the philosophical explanations of the cosmos were too recondent for the ordinary mind to grasp. That he did fulfill the purpose of furnishing the ordinary mind with a fairly easily comprehensible picture of the creation may be admitted. But, as will presently be seen, it is overstating the case to say that he was conceived with the set purpose of furnishing the ordinary mind with a concrete solution or illustration of this great problem. There is no evidence that Pa'anku had existed as a tradition before the time when we meet with the written account of him. And what is more, there is no evidence that there existed any demand on the part of the popular mind for any such solution or illustration. The ordinary mind would seem to have been either indifferent to or satisfied with the abstruse cosmogonical and cosmological theories of the early sages for at least a thousand years. The cosmogenies of the I Ching, of Lao Tzu, Confucius, Quan Tzu, Mencius, Chuang Tzu were all impersonal. Pa'an Ku and his myth must be regarded rather as an accident than as a creation resulting from the sudden flow of psychological forces or wind of discontent ruffling the placid Chinese mind. If the Chinese brought with them from Babylon or anywhere else the elements of a cosmogony, whether of a more or less obtruse scientific nature or a personal mythological narrative, it must have been subsequently forgotten or at least has not survived." But for Ko Hong's eccentricities and his wish to experiment with cinnabar from Cochin, China, in order to find the elixir of life, Pa'an Ku would probably never have been invented, and the Chinese mind would have been content to go on ignoring the problem or would have quite quietly acquiesced in the abstract philosophical explanations of the learned which it did not understand. Chinese cosmogony would then have consisted exclusively of the recondent impersonal metaphysics which the Chinese mind had entertained or been fed on for the 900 or more years preceding the invention of the Pa'an Ku myth. It is true that there exists one or two other explanations of the origin of things which introduce a personal creator. There is, for instance, the legend, first mentioned by Lei Zhu, which represents Nu Ka Shi, said to have been the sister and successor of Fu Shi, the mythical sovereign whose reign is ascribed to the years 2953 to 2838 BC as having been the creator of human beings when the earth first emerged from chaos. She, who had the body of a serpent and head of an ox, molded yellow earth and made man. Suma Sheng, 
of the 8th century AD, author of the historical records and of another work on the three great legendary emperors, Fuxi, Xinhuang, and Huang Ti, gives the following account, and I quote, Fuxi was succeeded by Nu Ka, who, like him, had the surname Fang. Nu Kawa had the body of a serpent and a human head, with the virtuous endowments of a divine sage. Toward the end of her reign, there was among the feudatory princes, Kung Kung, whose functions were the administration of punishment. Violent and ambitious, he became a rebel, and sought by the influence of water to overcome that of wood. He did battle with Chu Zheng, but was not victorious. Whereupon he struck his head against the imperfect mountain, Pu Shu San, and brought it down. The pillars of heaven were broken, and the corners of the earth gave way. Hereupon Nu Kwa melted stones of the five colors to repair the heavens, and cut off the feet of the tortoise to set upright the four extremities of the earth. Gathering the ashes of reeds, she stopped the flooding waters, and thus rescued the land of Qi, Qi Shao. End quote. Another account separates the names and makes Nu and Kwa brother and sister, describing them as the only two human beings in existence. At the creation, they were placed at the foot of the Kulun Mountains. Then they prayed, saying, If thou, O God, hast sent us to be man and wife, the smoke of our sacrifice will stay in one place. But if not, it will be scattered. The smoke remains stationary. But though Nuqua is said to have molded the first man out of clay, it is to be noted that, being only the successor of Fuxi, long lines of rulers had preceded her, of whom no account is given, and also that as regards the heavens and the earth at least, she is regarded as the repairer and not the creator of them. Heaven deaf and earth dumb, the two attendants of Wing Chang, the god of literature, have also been drawn into the cosmological net. From their union came the heavens and the earth, mankind and all living things. These and other brief and unelaborated personal cosmogenies, even if not to be regarded as spurious imitations, certainly have not become established in the Chinese mind as the explanation of the way in which the universe came to be. In this sphere, the Ku legend reigns supreme. And owing to its concrete, easily apprehensible nature, has possibly done so ever since the time of its invention. The period before the appearance of the Pan Ku myth may be divided into two parts. That from some early unknown date up to about the middle of the Confucian epoch, say 500 BC, and that from 500 BC to AD 400. We know that during the latter period, the minds of Chinese scholars were frequently occupied with speculations as to the origins of the universe. Before 500 BC, we have no documentary remains telling us what the Chinese believed about the origin of things. But it is exceedingly unlikely that no theories or speculations at all concerning the origin of themselves and their surroundings were formed by this intelligent people during the 18 centuries or more which preceded that date, at which we find the views held by them put into written form. Long story short, they probably had a vocal history and not a written one. 
It's safe to assume that the dualism which later occupied their philosophical thoughts to so great an extent as almost to seem inseparable from them, an exercise so powerful an influence throughout the course of their history, was not only formulating itself during that long period, but had gradually reached an advanced stage. We may even go so far as to say that dualism, or its beginnings, existed in the very earliest times. For the belief in the second self or ghost, or double of the dead, is in reality nothing else. And we find it operating with apparently undiminished energy after the Chinese mind had reached its maturity in the Sung dynasty. The Bible of Chinese dualism is the I Ching, the canon of changes. It is held in great veneration both on account of its antiquity and also because of the unfathomable wisdom which it supposed to lie concealed under its mysterious symbols. It is placed first in the list of the classics or sacred books, though it's not the oldest of them. When exactly the work itself on which the subsequent elaborations were founded was composed is not now known. Its origin is attributed to the legendary emperor Fuxi. It does not furnish a cosmogony proper, but merely a dualistic system as an explanation, or attempted explanation, or even perhaps only a record of the constant changes going on everywhere. That explanation or record was used for purposes of divination. This dualistic system, by a simple addition, became a monism, and at the same time furnished the Chinese with a cosmogony. The five elements, or forces, which according to the Chinese are metal, air, fire, water, and wood, are first mentioned in Chinese literature in a chapter of the classic book of history. They play a very important part in Chinese thoughts. Elements, meaning generally not so much the actual substances as the forces essential to human life. They have to be noticed in passing because they were involved in the development of the cosmological ideas which took place in the 11th and 12th centuries AD. As their imagination grew, it was natural that the Chinese should begin to ask themselves what, if the yang and the yin by their permutations produced, or gave shape to all things, was it that produced that the yang and the yin? When we see traces of this inquisitive tendency, we find ourselves on the borderland of dualism, where the transition is taking place into the realm of monism. But though there may have been a tendency toward monism in early times, it was only in the Sung dynasty that the philosophers definitely placed behind the yang and the yin a first cause, the grand origin, grand extreme, grand terminus, or ultimate ground of existence. They gave to it the name Tai Chi, and represented it by a concrete sign, the symbol of a circle. The complete scheme shows the evolution of the 64 diagrams from the Tai Chi through the Yang and the Yin, the 4, 8, 16, and 32 diagrams successfully. This conception was the work of the Sung philosopher Chao Tuni, commonly known as Chao Zhu, and his disciple Chu Si known as Chusu, or Chufusu, <laughs> the famous historian and Confucian commenter, two of the greatest names in Chinese philosophy. It was at this time that the tide of constructive imagination in China, tinged through it always was with classical Confucianism, rose to its greatest heights. 
There is the philosopher seeking for causes, yet in this matter of the first cause, we detect in the full flood of Confucianism the potent influence of Taoist and Buddhist speculations. It has even been said that the Sung philosophy, which grew not from the I Ching itself, but from the appendixes to it, is more Taoistic than Confucian. As it was with the Pa'an Ku legend, so was it with this more philosophical cosmogony. The more fertile Taoist and Buddhist imaginations led to the preservation of what the Confucianists, distrusting the marvelous, would have allowed to die a natural death. It was, after all, the mystical foreign elements which gave point to, we might rightly say rounded off, the early dualism by converting it into monism, carrying philosophical speculation from the knowable to the unknowable, and furnishing the Chinese with their first scientific theory of the origin, not of the changes going on in the universe, but of the universe itself. Chao Tuni, appropriately apothesized as Prince in the Empire of Reason, completed and systemized the philosophical world conception which had hitherto obtained in the Chinese mind. He did not ask his fellow countrymen to discard any part of what they had long held in high esteem. He raised the old theories from the sphere of science to that of philosophy by unifying them and bringing them into a focus. And he made this unification intelligible to the Chinese mind by his famous Tai Chi Tu, or Diagram of the Great Origin, showing that the grand original cause, itself uncaused, produces the yang and the yin, these the five elements, and so on, through the male and female norms to the production of everything. The writings of Chu Si, especially his treatise on the Amer- the immaterial principle and primary matter, leave no doubt as to the monism of his philosophy. In this work occurs the passage, and I quote, In the universe there exists no primary matter devoid of the immaterial principle, and no immaterial principle apart from primary matter, end quote. And although the two are never separated, the immaterial principle is what is previous to form, while primary matter is what is subsequent to form. The idea being that the two are different manifestations of the same mysterious force from which all things proceed. It's unnecessary to follow this philosophy along all the different branches which grew out of it, for we are here concerned only with the seed We have observed how Chinese dualism became a monism, and how while the monism was established, the dualism was retained. It is this monodualistic theory, combining the older and newer philosophy, which in China, then as now, constitutes the accepted explanation of the origin of things, and the universe itself, and all that it contains. There are other cosmogenies in Chinese philosophy, but they need not detain us for long. Lao Si, in his Tao Te Ching, the canon of reason and virtue, gave to, gave to then existing scattered sporadic conceptions of the universe a literary form. His Tao, or Wei, is the originator of heaven and earth. It is the mother of all things. 
His way, which was before God, is but a metaphorical expression for the manner in which things came at first into being, out of the primal nothingness, and how the phenomena of nature continues to go on, in stillness and quietness without striving or crying. Lao Tzu is thus so far monistic, and he is also mystical, transcendental, and even pantheistic. The way that can be walked is not the eternal way. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The unnameable is the originator of heaven and earth, manifesting itself as the nameable. It is the mother of all things. In eternal non-being, I see the spirituality of things. In eternal being, their limitation. Though different under these two aspects, they are the same in origin. It is when development takes place that different names have to be used. It is while they are in the condition of sameness that the mystery concerning them exists. This mystery is indeed the mystery of mysteries. It is the door of all spirituality. This Tao, indefinable and in its essence unknowable, is the fountainhead of all beings and the norm of all actions. But it is not only the formative principle of the universe, it also seems to be primordial matter. Chaotic in its comp composition, born prior to heaven and earth, noiseless, formless, standing alone in its solitude, and not changing, universal in its activity and unrelaxing, without being exhausted, it is capable of becoming the mother of the universe. And there we may leave it. There is no scheme of creation properly so called. The unwalkable way leads us to nothing further in the way of a cosmogony. Confucius because you know we were going to get there. Confucius lived between 551 and 479 BC. And he didn't throw any light on the problem of origin. He didn't speculate on the creation of things, nor the end of them. He was not troubled to account for the origin of man, nor did he seek to know about his hereafter. He meddled neither with physics nor metaphysics. There might, he thought, be something on the other side of life, for he admitted the existence of spiritual beings. They had an influence on the living because they caused them to clothe themselves in ceremonious dress and attend to the sacrificial ceremonies. But we shouldn't trouble ourselves about them any more than about supernatural things or physical prowess or monstrosities. How can we serve spiritual beings while we do not know how to serve men? We feel the existence of something invisible and mysterious, but its nature and meaning are too deep for the human understanding to grasp. The safest, indeed the only reasonable course, is that of agnostic. To leave alone the unknowable, while acknowledging its existence and its mystery. And to try to understand knowable phenomena and guide our actions accordingly. Between the monism of Lao Tzu and the positivism of Confucius on the one hand, and the landmark of the Taoistic transcendence, Dentalism of Chung Sao, 4th and 3rd centuries BC, on the other, we find several guesses at the riddle of existence, which must be briefly noted as links in the chain of Chinese speculative thought on this important subject. In the philosophy of Mo Ti, generally known as Mo Tzu or Mu Tzu, the philosopher of humanism and utilitarianism, we find the idea of creation. It was, he says, heaven who created the sun, moon, and innumerable stars. 
His system closely resembles Christianity, but the great power of Confucianism as a weapon wielded against all opponents by its doughty defender, Mencius, is shown by the complete suppression of the influence of Mao Suism at his hands. He even went so far as to describe Mu So and those who thought with him as wild animals. Mencius himself regarded heaven as the first cause, or cause of causes, but it was not the same personal heaven as that of Mosu, nor does he hang any cosmogony upon it. His chief concern was to eulogize the doctrines of the great Confucius, and like him, he preferred to let the origin of the universe look after itself. Li Su, one of the brightest stars in the Taoist constellation, considered this nameable world as having evolved from an unnameable absolute being. The evolution did not take place through the direction of a personal will working out a plan of creation. In the beginning, there was chaos. It was a mingled potentiality of form, pneuma, and substance. A great change took place in it, and there was a great starting, which is the beginning of form. The great starting evolved a great beginning, which is the inception of pneuma. The great beginning was followed by the great blank, which is the first formation of substance. Substance, pneuma, and form being all evolved out of the primordial chaotic mass. This material world, as it lies before us, came into existence. And that which made it possible for chaos to evolve was the solitary indeterminate, which is not created, but is able to create everlastingly. And being both solitary and indeterminate, it tells us nothing determinate about itself. Chuang Chu, generally known as Chuang Tzu, the most brilliant Taoist of all, maintained with Lao Tzu that the universe started from the nameless, but it was, if possible, a more absolute and transcendental nameless than that of Lao Tzu. He dwells on the relativity relativity of knowledge, as when asleep, he did not know that he was a man dreaming that he was a butterfly. So when awake, he did not know that he was not a butterfly dreaming that he was a man. But all is embraced in the obliterating unity of the Tao, and the wise man passing into the realm of the infinite finds rest therein. And this Tao, of which we hear so much in Chinese philosophy, was before the great ultimate or grand terminus, and from it came the mysterious existence of God. It produced heaven, and it produced earth. I don't know about you, but I'm going to go to sleep tonight and dream that I am a woman being a butterfly. So that way when I wake up, can I be a butterfly dreaming I'm a woman? I like it. These and other cosmogenies which the Chinese have devised, though it is necessary to note their existence in order to give a just idea of their cosmological speculations, need not, as I said, detain us long. And the reason why they need not do so is that in the matter of cosmogony, the Pian Ku legend and the yin-yang system, with its monistic elaboration, occupy virtually the whole feel of the Chinese mental vision. It is these two, the popular and the scientific, that we mean when we speak of Chinese cosmogony. Though here and there a stern sectarian might deny that the universe originated in one or, or the other of these two ways, still the general rule holds good. Though the Pian Ku legend belongs to the 4th century AD, the I Ching dualism was not, rightly speaking, a cosmogony until Chu Tuni made it one by the publication of his Tai Chi Tu in the 11th century AD. 
Over the unscientific and the scientific minds of the Chinese, these two are paramount. Applying the general principles stated in the preceding notes, we find the same cause which operated to restrict the growth of mythology in general in China, operated also in like manner in this particular branch of it. With one exception, Chinese cosmogony is non-mythological. The careful and studious accurate historians, the sober literature, the vast influence of agnostic, matter-of-fact Confucianism, supported by the heavy Manchian artillery, are indisputable indications of a constructive imagination which grew too quickly and became too rapidly scientific to admit of much soaring into the realms of fantasy. Unaroused by any strong stimulus in their ponderings over the riddle of the universe, the sober, plodding scientists and the calm, truth-loving philosophers gained a peaceful victory over the mythologists. And on that note, my darlings, we have come to the end of the episode. I thank you for joining me here today, and I hope you'll take some time to reach out and share your thoughts about today's episode. I loved this email and I loved that I got a schooling on Chinese mythology and origin stories. I really enjoyed it. It was very deep and very interesting. And seriously, send me the next set because I'm ready. I'm ready for the next part. I'm just saying. Anyways, you can reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you want to share your thoughts about today's episode, you need somebody to chat with because you're bored, drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. And on that note, that's all the time I have for you this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you guessed it. Don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love ya. Mwah, 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 mwah. We don't sugarcoat shit. <laughs> this is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.